as I was um, just about to walk up these stairs, I leaned down to my son to give him a little kiss on his forehead, and he whispers in my ear, puts his hand on my arm and says, make me proud. <laughs> That's why if my wife was, you heard my wife starting to laugh during G Amy's prayer, that was it. Make me proud. Yeah, okay, I'll do my best. Um, so, welcome to Wellspring. Uh, my name's Tony. I have the, the privilege and pleasure of being on pastoral staff here. It's good to be with you uh, today. If you're new, visiting, checking us out, we're just glad to be here. We're going to sing some songs, dig into the scriptures. We're going to grab some food after. Please stay and join and say hello to some folks. If you are a kid and want to hang out with other kids, uh, our teachers are over in the corner over here. Uh, they would love to hang out with you. Now, uh, <laughs> gosh, that was just too funny. Um, my son Josiah is known for witty little comments. It's really funny. Uh, okay, task at hand, task at hand. Okay. So we're going to take a break from uh, our journey through the Old Testament. So we've been sort of slowly making our way through the Scriptures. Genesis, we just finished Joshua. We'll start Judges, actually, uh, in a few weeks. But we're going to spend the next four to five weeks leaning into what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? What does it look like to adopt rhythms and practices that shape who we are? Right? Because one of our convictions here at Wellspring is that Following Jesus is not simply about what we believe. It's also about how we spend our time, how we leverage our resources, uh, how we structure our daily life, how we relate to our friends and our enemies. But it's often easier said than done, right? In some ways, it's easier to believe something than to live out that belief, isn't it? Life is complex. Many of us carry lots of responsibilities. Life changes, so you get a pattern established, then you have a vacation or something blows up in your life, and now you need to refigure out those very patterns that you rocked last month. This is why at Wellspring, we on a regular basis come back at least once a year, a couple times a year, to focus on practices that shape the way of Jesus. And it's why when we started this church plant, we came in with a discipleship acronym that said, hey, we think this will capture not everything, but a lot of the core practices of Jesus. Right? So if you've been around, you've heard of ABLE. ABLE is sort of our discipleship acronym. A stands for ATTEND. Right? We want to be a people that on a regular basis are attending to the person of Jesus. We want to be people who are blessing people inside and outside the church. Right? Bless. We want to be people that are learning from the Scriptures. Right? Disciple in Greek is a learner. We want to be people that are submitting ourselves right, to the teaching of Jesus, particularly in the Scriptures. And then eat. We want to be a people that are eating with people inside and outside the church as a way to foster community and practice hospitality as a way of witnessing to who God is and what the gospel is all about. If you go online, Aaron and I have done some updated videos. We have four practices for each of those letters for attend, bless, learn, and eat. We have videos for each of them on the scriptures. We have PDFs that have practices and questions you can explore. 16 different practices that we think don't nail everything, but they get pretty close. If you rock those 16, you're going to be practicing the way of Jesus. Maybe not perfectly, but you'll be, you know, not so shabby either. All right. 
But over the next four weeks, what we're going to do is lean into four specific practices. This week, we're going to talk about Sabbath. Next week, we're going to talk about a blessed practice of what does it look like to be a faithful presence of Jesus in the world? Then we're talking about reading the scriptures. Week three and then week four, we're going to talk about community. What does it look like to practice community? So each week, we're going to do these different practices, try and get on the ground, both in the scriptures, but also in everyday life. What does it look like to meaningfully practice the way of Jesus? So today, we're going to look into solitude and Sabbath, and I'd like to just start by acknowledging that most of us are busy, right? Like you start talking about Sabbath, solitude, and people are like, oh no, you know, You're in your 20s, and you just have so many commitments, obligations out there, right? FOMO, the fear of missing out. It's like, I have so many things. I'm going to commit to everything, and I'll show up to about 20%, but my calendar is just going to be super scheduled, right? And then maybe at some point, you decide to have kids. I remember uh, when my wife and I had kids, our kids never slept. And so, you know, most people, they go to bed. When you're married, you go to bed, you say good night. We just looked at each other and said, good luck. You know, and then your kids get into middle school and high school, and now you're uber mom or uber dad, and you're like, I'm working a job, I'm uber parent, and you're just driving everywhere. Then you think, oh, my kids, you know, I'm an empty nester, my kids are gone, but now you're in massive life transition, you're at the peak of your career often, and you're trying to figure out, who am I without these little people running around? And then you think, oh, retirement. Retirement will be the time when I just get to lounge and relax, but I bet if we did a survey right now on retirement, the retired people would say, actually, this is the busiest season of my life, right? Visiting grandkids, traveling, I swear, with retirees, I don't know when they're ever going to be here or not. It's like, wait, where, what part of the world are you in now? Right? Because it's this time when you're like, I get to relax, but relaxing means doing the things that you put off doing for the last 40 years because you were juggling so many other things. So you enter this cultural moment, and we wonder why we're so busy and hectic and overwhelmed. I did a uh, little, read this article this week about this guy who did a Facebook, like, survey. He used to, it was like thousands of people, you know, all these followers, and uh, he's like, on a scale of one to ten, just please rate how busy you are. Guess what the average number was? Just shout it out. Yeah, seven or eight. That's what you'd think, right? Like, and that's serious, right? You're like, eight? Yeah, people are stressed, hair on fire. The average response was (laughs) 13.3. Right? Because no one feels like their busyness can be contained in a 10-point scale. And so that 13.5 average had to have been like 17, right? Like the race, basically, it's like 17 to 10. I read an article that was actually a... um, it was an academic study on phones. This is a fascinating study on college students. And uh, so in the study, they, they sort of looked at phantom vibration of phones. And the study said uh, that 89% of college students report feeling phantom phone vibrations, imagining their phone is summoning them to attention when it actually hasn't buzzed. Like, people have gotten now, even when we're potentially, like, bored, we imagine our phone summing us to attention, to distract us from the potential of boredom. 
Another article I read said that 86% of Americans say they check their email and social media accounts constantly. And it's really stressing them out. So with even these small windows of potential downtime, we either imagine our phone summoning us, or we do things with our phone that stresses us out in order to be productive. I was thinking about this because at 3 p.m. most days I have to go pick up my son and I have this sort of clear choice. In that five minutes where I'm maybe a few minutes early waiting for him to come out, do I sit there and potentially endure a moment of unproductivity? Or do I cram in a couple emails, rock that podcast for a minute, what do I do? And I know I'm not alone, because if you look at every other parent there, they either have something in their ears, they're playing on their phone, they're doing something. Right? This is the world we live in. It's a world where there's all these distractions at our fingertips, luring us away from slowing down. Practices of withdrawing, even many Sabbaths throughout the day. And I guess my question is, if that is our reality, and I think it is. I mean, I'm sure there's some people here that are like, that's not my reality, but you are the John the Baptist of our generation, okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> Most people don't wear hair shirts, right? Most people have these phones that summon them, and they feel overwhelmed, stressed, and busy. The question is, the question is, what do the Scriptures have to say to us in the 21st century navigating this cultural milieu? What do they say? And I want to go back to the very beginning of the Scriptures in Genesis 1 to sort of begin wrestling with this idea. So if you know the story, right, God creates everything out of nothing. He creates the sky, the earth, the land, the water creates creeping things and flying things. And on day six, he creates cows and humans. I mean, the creation story tells us one thing, probably more than anything, tells us that we are limited creatures. They're utterly, utterly dependent on God, who is the creator of all things. And that all of us, right now, sitting in these pews, going about our days, breathing the air we breathe, we are utterly dependent on the provision and the grace and mercy of God, which keeps everything going. The setting sun, the air, the food, we are all utterly dependent on God, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. There's also this moment in the creation story in verses 29 and 30 where God provides food for humans. And it's this moment that as 21st century people, we just skip over. We're like, duh, we have to eat. This makes sense. Every creation narrative has this. But it's actually pretty interesting. And it might feel silly to mention. But for an ancient person, this would have been a key moment in the narrative. Now, if you were with us when we went through Genesis 1, this is a little bit of repeat, but I'm going to do it for those of you who weren't with Genesis 1 because it's kind of important. You see, when the Genesis 1 was written, there were other competing creation myths, uh, Babylonian epics that explained creation and essentially went like this. There was this battle among the gods, and these gods, the losers, had to create a temple and like this whole artifice of worship for the winning gods. 
Now, the winning gods, they get this temple, this artifice, and they're like, this is amazing. And then they realize, oh man, this sacrificial system feeding us is really a burden. It's cutting into my leisure. So what they do is say, we're going to create some beings that will help us maintain the temple as our slaves. Introduce humans. So in the ancient Near East, in these Babylonian epics, humans are slaves created to basically feed the gods. Contrast to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God creates human beings in his image, and then what does he do? He feeds them. Two. Genesis 2.1, he feeds them, and then what does he do? He rests from all that he has made, and what does he do? He invites humans made in his image to rest with him. Humans begin with a day off, a shared holiday with God. Right? We're not meant to be slaves in the temple of Babylon or Silicon Valley or wherever, but creatures created by God for relationship with God. And this is how the Hebrew Bible begins. And if you read the rest of it, you see this recognition of relationship and creaturely limitation continues. Right? When God forms a people after his own heart, he rescues them from Egypt, he gives them laws and rules to live by. He etches some of these into stones. Right? One of them is a principle of rest, the Sabbath. Right? A creature's reminder that He or she is not the creator of all things, but a dust creature formed in God's image. Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Right? And as he forms his people and their way of being in the world, He institutes this Sabbath, this day of rest, a day of recalibrating, a relational day to create space for God. It's a definitive reminder on a weekly basis, hey guys, you're not the Lord of the universe. I am. And when you step back and actually look at the way the Sabbath is framed throughout the Scriptures, a few things pop up. Uh, One, It's a day, so three, these are kind of three principles. One is the Sabbath becomes a day to stop and rest, right? We see this in Genesis 2 and we see it in Exodus 20. Cease from working, thinking about work, worrying about work, and in this space, rest physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, attend to the God who loves and provides for you. Two, Isaiah 58, 3 tells us the Sabbath is also meant to be a delight. This is a day to enjoy. Eat good food, walk in nature, spend time with your family, your friends, listen to music, play games. If you're married, this is a time to uh, have sex with your spouse. Right? Sexuality is part of the created order meant to be enjoyed, a delight. That's not meant to be an impossible set of rules, but rather a time to slow down, be with God, and delight in the world and all the things He has given us. Three, it's also a time to worship. Psalm 92 is literally a psalm written for the Sabbath, and it's shaped by worship. 
talks about praising God in the morning, giving thanks, singing for joy at what God has done. This is what Sabbath's about. And yet, when you read the Old Testament, what you see is that people really quickly start to forget this. It's for rest and delight and worship. And I think we understand why. Think of all the responsibilities you carry. We feel pushed. We feel pulled. What happens is rest and delight and worship end up getting pushed to the side. Because we have all kinds of responsibilities and obligations and they pressure us. Sabbath can even start to feel like this annoying principle of like really religious people that just won't get off your back. Like, stop talking about it already. I have so much to do. Stop guilting me. As followers of Jesus, I think sometimes we're even tempted to disregard the Sabbath as like this Old Testament thing. It's like, oh, they did this then, but it doesn't apply to us. And then if you read Jesus' comments, you're like, but Jesus has all kinds of conflict with his contemporaries over this idea of the Sabbath. Like, obviously, he doesn't care about it, right? But you see, we have to pay attention to the historical context of the first century. In the first century, you have Greco-Roman and Roman culture really coming in in this fast and overtaking way in Israel and Palestine. An example of this would be there's so much pressure happening that like you have these, this is a silly example, but you have these gymnasios, uh, basically, I don't know, gyms, uh, that are popping up. That's my Greek, you know, gymnasio, yeah, also means gym. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but in these gyms, right, they basically practice wrestling, but they would do it nude, right? Just like your gym. And um, <laughs> so you'd have these gyms, and they would practice nude, and the, the Hebrew boys had been circumcised. And they actually developed a procedure around this time called the epispasm as a way to reverse circumcision so that Hebrew boys could participate in the gym without being known as an outsider. Okay, pick your jaw up. There you go. So you, like, you just imagine the pressure that a Hebrew boy would have to feel to have a reverse circumcision procedure. That's in the culture everywhere. So what you start to have is this real focus on external boundary markers of belonging, Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, kosher. And so there's this intense focus on, are you doing the right thing or the wrong thing? And I want a very easy way to evaluate whether you are in or you are out. Let's look at the Sabbath in particular, because it's just fascinating. So, there's like a running list of hundreds of things you could not do on the Sabbath. Let's just sort of dig through a couple. Take knots. Two hands? Absolutely not. Uh, do you see that? Not, not. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just. Okay. You can tie a knot with one hand, but not two. That's a first century Sabbath principle. So if someone sees you tying a knot with two hands, you've obviously broken the Sabbath. Okay. Gardening, don't spit on the soil. 
if, you, if I see you spitting on the soil, you have obviously broken the Sabbath because you are tilling. Okay? Uh, don't wear shoes with nails in, him, in them because you're obviously carrying an unnecessary burden. Um, don't walk on the grass. You can't do it. That's too close to digging a trench. Can't do it. Now, you're like, this is weird. Yes, because what they've taken is a principle that was for rest, delight, and worship, and they've made it into this list of things you can do and can't do so they can say whether you're doing it or not. You're either in or you're out. There's these external boundary markers of belonging. So you wield it like a weapon to exclude. Hence, what we see in the Gospels is Jesus pushing back, especially when he heals people on the Sabbath. Right In the Gospel of Mark, there's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are waiting to see whether Jesus is going to break the Sabbath rules in order to heal him. So he asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to evil? Right? To give life or to kill? And the Pharisees don't answer. It's an obvious answer, but they don't. So he heals the man. But because Jesus has broken these external boundary markers that are so important to them, it's right after this in the Gospel of Mark, they decide, you know what? Jesus has to die. Jesus' point is probably best summarized when it comes to Sabbath and rest in Mark 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Again, the point is not for external boundary markers of belonging. The Sabbath exists because creatures need rest. And the Sabbath creates a rhythm, a practice that serves human beings by inviting them to slow down, by inviting us to be with God, to recalibrate our lives according to a universe where God is at the center, not our productivity, where God is creator, and we're limited creatures trying our best just to follow Him. Right? The Sabbath is created so that we can rest, delight, and worship. With this in mind, right, it shouldn't surprise us that amidst overwhelming need and Jesus' ability to meet that need. I mean, think of it. All these people are coming to him all the time. All the time he's bombarded with needs and responsibilities. And unlike you and me, he can actually solve them. Literally every person that comes to him, he can help. And yet, he still withdraws on a regular basis to refresh and be with God. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Right? Jesus disconnected from the busy, from all the demands and needs of his moment, from his ministry, from all the good he could do. And what does he do? He attends to God. He prays. In Mark, it says very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Again, in Luke, 
Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. In Matthew, after Jesus sends the disciples on a boat ride and he dismisses the crowd, then he says this, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Jesus leaves his friends. He leaves the crowd. He leaves all the busyness. He leaves his smartphone. He leaves all the different things that could distract him to attend to the Father, to his kingdom, to reorient himself, right? For Jesus, solitude and Sabbath are not a a rule, right, to mark spiritual superiority. They're a habit that Jesus adopts, right, a rhythm that helps him draw near and attend to God. Now, we could keep going on this, uh, but I think this gives us at least some broad sense of Old Testament, New Testament, how that might relate to us. But I want to sort of square in on how does then translate into our everyday life. What does this look like in your life, in my life, that we've already, I think, commonly agreed to? Maybe you haven't, but I'll agree for you. That, like, this is a busy, busy culture. So what do we do in it? I read this quote by uh, John Ortberg this last week. He says this, For most of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. Is that you? You feel like you've been so caught up in the busyness, the responsibilities, that you've settled for a version of faith that is not really bringing you life, transforming you, aligning your heart and your mind and your spirit with Jesus and his kingdom. The truth is, I don't think I have met a really spiritually mature person that I admired, that I was like, I want to be like that person who didn't have some significant patterns of withdrawing from the busy and the crazy in order to attend to the person of Jesus. Because it's in that withdrawing that we're reminded the world does not revolve around us. It revolves around God. And we get to participate in that ministry, in that world, but it doesn't revolve around us. Ruth Haley Barton, in Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, writes, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in silence, we are vulnerable to a kind of life that is driven by a profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. Sometimes we get so caught up in the busyness, Mark Laberton calls the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. We get so caught up in these rhythms that we lose track of why we are even moving so fast in the first place. Right? You withdraw for a little bit and you're like, what am I doing? Why am I living like this? Sometimes we need these patterns of withdrawal. Sabbath. Right? We need these patterns of withdrawal to even know what's going on inside of us. To hear what God might be saying to us. Right, because when you're in the busyness, you get so focused on all the external things, you lose touch of what's going on internally. 
Second, you get so focused on everyone else's voice, your boss, your child, your coworker, all these other voices start to dominate your head and you lose track of the speaking voice of God. Who is the one who calls you? The one who shapes your image of yourself? The one who reconforms and transforms your heart? Now, my assumption is, you know, there's a couple different ways to respond to this. Like, I, I think one way is, Tony, that's great. You know, this withdrawing, this Sabbath, is supposed to be delight. But I'll tell you the truth. When I get 30 minutes to myself and I do nothing, all I feel is anxiety. And that's often true. Because we get so caught up in all the things that when you actually withdraw from those things... It can take 120 minutes to actually get to the place where your body and your mind will settle enough that you can actually experience some level of delight and peace and rest. But really what that is, it's a symptom of attachment and addiction. I, was, um, I read a letter leaders thing a, a bit ago, and in this leaders gathering, some of the people were trying to practice some of these principles, and they said, one of them was like, you know, I tried to do this, like I tried to leave my phone at home for a four-hour chunk, and this person was like, I experienced a level of anxiety that I have not experienced in a long time, and this person had no idea that just leaving her phone was going to do that. Because so many of us, right, we have the phone with us all the time. We have the phantom vibration thing. We're constantly checking. We feel like if we're not checking our phone, we're not alive. Sometimes we experience anxiety when we remove things that we've grown attached to. And the practice of Sabbath is attaching to God and detaching from those things that maybe drain us. Now, others of us think, Tony, that's great. You know, fine sermon, but I really do have a lot of responsibilities. Like, great. You know, you have your responsibilities. Me, on the other hand, I have a lot of really important things to do. And I get that. Sometimes that is true, right? For the last month, like, I think there were, usually I do my, like, Sabbath on Fridays. I didn't do it because I was caring for my mom who had, was in the hospital. That happens. But if that becomes the defining feature of our life, something problematic happens, it's this quote by A.J. Uh, Swoboda. He says this, Sabbath is God's eternal way of helping us worship our good God and not worship the good work He has given us to do. We do this all the time. We do this exchange. We invert Genesis 1. I am the creator of the universe who needs to juggle all these things. I'm responsible. God, I'll get to you in a bit. Because I have all these responsibilities. But that's not Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God is the creator of the universe who delegates his image bearers, us, tasks to do. But they were never meant to overtake our worship of him. So there's this balance here. 
God is the creator. We are creatures. He gives us tasks to do, but those tasks should never become the thing we worship. They should always be the things that we hold with an open hand saying, God, you are God. What do I have to do today? Versus God, these are all the things I need to do today. Get in line. When we prioritize the thing God asks us to do, those responsibilities, over attending to and being with God, this is modern-day idolatry. Right? Often we think of idolatry as those little figurines that people have in different places of the world, and we think, I don't have a figurine, I'm good. Idolatry is simply exchanging the worship of God for the worship of things we believe God calls us to do, or basically anything other than God. So what's the prescription? So what do we do in a world where we have all this busyness, all this responsibilities, we're tempted to worship the things God has called us to do instead of the creator who we're called to worship? What do we do? But there's this great quote by Eugene Peterson that I really like. He says, one of the ways God has provided for us to stay aware of and responsive to him as the determining and centering reality of our lives in a world that doesn't care about this is Sabbath-keeping. At regular intervals, we all need to quit our work and contemplate His. Quit talking to each other and listen to Him. God knows we need this and has given us a means to Sabbath, a day for praying and playing and simply enjoying what He is. See, the Sabbath was never meant to be about external boundary markers. It was about stopping and resting, delighting and worshiping, praying and playing. Now, just as a frame, I think for most of us, like trying to go from this sermon to a 24-hour Sabbath where you're on no tech is like, like you might as well just be like, all right, I'm quitting and becoming a Quaker. Like most of us <laughs> are not going to do it. Like I just think most of us are not going to get there that quick. I think one frame is to say, okay, what does it look like to shrink the change when we're talking about the change dynamic here. What does it look like to make that change as small and doable and realistic as possible, not like in six months, but tomorrow, this week? Like, what is a practice of withdrawing that you could begin tomorrow? Or next week? Can you think of any pockets of time from one minute to five hours that you have total control over? Because one of the trickinesses of this is that the more people you involve in this decision, the more complex it gets. So shrinking a change means how do you reduce the complexity by saying, hey, I'm pretty sure I have a five-minute pocket this day that I can start. Or on Saturday, I'm pretty sure I can get an hour. What does that look like for you? Right, maybe you have an, a lunch hour that instead of sitting by yourself, you could go on a walk with Jesus. Maybe you have a commute and instead of just rocking out to your favorite music, you listen to the scriptures. I, um, you know, in, for me personally, right, this has varied a lot depending on season of life. 
So in this season right now, like married, two kids, but our kids like can sort of fend for themselves in the morning. Like I can go into our little basement area and like have a morning space of, I don't know, 15 to 45 minutes, pretty much interruption free. I could not do that when my kids were three. But I can do that now. Right? In this season for us, like, you know, Jeannie is now working and both my kids are in school. And so, like, on Fridays, I actually have a six hour chunk where I turn off my phone and I'm, I'm gone. But in my, you know, when my kids were little again, I couldn't do that. Seasons change. Right, uh, when Jeannie and I were first married, like we would do a full day away and then we'd gather up for dinner. So we'd have literally like eight hours away. But then we had kids and then we'd do a, a day swap. So we'd take, I would take the kids for four hours. I would usually go first in the morning for four hours and then we'd flop and then Jeannie would go and I'd have the kids, right? That's how we did it. In the context of your life, what does it look like to have patterns of withdrawing? What does it look like to move closer to Jesus? One frame we often use at Wellspring is the difference between bounded set and centered set. Bounded set is sort of like imagining when it comes to Sabbath keeping, it's like, if I cannot do 24 hours away, I might as well just not do it, right? It's an external marker of belonging. I'm either in or I'm out. I either rocked it or I'm terrible. We often approach rest and delight and worship in this way. I'm terrible. I can't do it. I can't get an hour in the morning every day. Why even do it? Versus another approach would be centered set. And centered set is Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. The question isn't whether you're in or out. The question is, are you moving closer? This week, are you making space to attend to Jesus by focusing your eyes on him and taking a step closer in his direction? What does it look like for you to put Jesus at the center in such a way that you're not worshiping productivity or any other God, but you are putting Jesus at the center and say, gosh, I want to rest in you. I want to delight in you. I want to worship you. On the very practical, I would say, I think two experiments are worth trying this week. One is, what does it look like to take one step closer to Jesus as you attend to him on a daily basis? I don't honestly care if you withdraw from your rhythm for one minute or an hour. It really is based on where you're at today. If you're not doing anything on a daily basis, start with a minute. Move to five. Move to ten. Start moving in that direction and don't stop. Right? Don't just hear the sermon and be like, I could never do it. Start somewhere. And then when it comes to the larger chunks of time on a weekly basis, I find most people at this point, like I can do daily, that weekly thing, Tony, is impossible. It's actually not. It is not impossible, but it does, does create some prioritizing. And it does mean saying no to other things. But again, I think most people can do an hour. But what would it look like to push it up to three? 
I think two hours, what I would say, if you really want to have actual time to tend to Jesus, two hours every week is pretty important because then you actually can slow down. Most people are moving so fast that if you don't have at least two hours away, it's very hard to actually really center. Especially the more demanding your job. So like one of the things that happens here is the more demanding, the more stressed, the more anxious, the more overwhelmed, actually the more time you need. But what happens is the more stressed, anxious, overwhelmed you are, the less time you get. So then it actually becomes a sort of a a spiraling of symptoms. And then it's the people that have the most time that are the least stressed that end up taking the most time. They're like, oh, life's great. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, you don't have as much you're juggling. <laughs> but I think we need to invert that process. Figure out a way to undermine it a little bit. So my invitation to you, what is something you can do tomorrow? And what is something you could do next weekend? that would help you to attend to the person of Jesus because he wants you to rest in him. He wants you to delight in what he has made and he wants you to worship him with all of who you are. With that said, I want to invite the worship team up and we're going to be leaning into a song um, that's all about God's provision, which I think is important as we think about Sabbath, right? Because in the end, God is the provider of what we need. He is the one that we have to depend on. So I just want to invite you as we move in this song, and as we're talking about centered set, we're talking about refocusing on Jesus, right? This is your, this is your rough draft. This is your first attempt. This is that moment. You've already withdrawn. You've made time to be here. So let's focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus. Let's listen to his speaking voice. Let's let the Spirit speak to to us about the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture that enslave and entangle us. Let's let the Spirit convict us so that we can be set free to worship Jesus, to serve in his kingdom, to be shaped by the way of Jesus and not the way of the world. Right? There's literally attention engineers in Silicon Valley trying to figure out ways to take your attention away from Jesus right now. Let's bring our attention to him. That he might be the Lord of all. God, we thank you. We pray, God, that you would be with us. Awaken our hearts. Reveal, God, your kingdom in this place. Holy Spirit, fall upon us that we might see your face. God, may all the words that I said that were unhelpful just disappear like fog in a wind. May all the words that are from you sink deep into our minds and hearts and not be forgotten. God, may you be elevated. 
You are creator and sustainer and provider. You are the one we want to worship. Awaken our hearts.